0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm
1: Tracy B. Wilson.
0: Tracy, everybody's heard the name Ernest Hemingway. I think most people have at
1: least... Heard of him?
0: <laughs> yeah, they may not have read his work, or maybe they did. Uh, and his life is pretty well known and well documented because he was so famous even in his own time. But his brother is another story. But Lester, and that is spelled the same way that the city in England is spelled, but it is pronounced Lester. Similarly, much younger than his famous sibling, has quite a story of his own, and it is, as you'll see, a life very much lived in relation to his brother. In some ways, his identity growing up was I'm Hemingway's little brother. We're going to talk about the biography that he wrote about Ernest, and really anything about himself is through the lens of how his brother influenced him or how it related to his brother. It really was not until after Ernest Hemingway's death that Lester made his boldest moves in life, Uh, and we're going to talk about all that. As a heads up, as you may or may not know, if you know any details about Hemingway's life and the Hemingway family – There are going to be several instances of suicide that we talk about in today's show. Not in great detail, but they do come up as elements that happen along the way.
1: So when Lester was born on April 1st, 1915, his brother Ernest, who would become just wildly famous, was already 16 years old. The family was living in the Oak Park suburb of Chicago at the time. The oldest of the Hemingway siblings was their sister Marceline, who was born a year before Ernest in 1898, they also had two more sisters, Ursula, born in 1902, and Madeleine, who was called Sunny, born in 1904. Another daughter, Carol, came along in 1911. So Lester was the baby of the family, also unplanned. His father was
0: Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, and his mother was Grace Ernestine Hall. The Hemingways were supporters of the arts and of missionary efforts, and Clarence founded a local chapter of the Agassiz Society, which was focused on collecting and studying natural objects. They were also very interested in science in the natural world. Clarence was a doctor, and he worked for several insurance companies as their medical examiner while also leading the obstetrics department at Oak Park Hospital. There's a a moment in the biography Lester wrote that he was also working for a dairy as like their physical exam guy for their employees. And Grace had been on the cusp of what could have potentially been a pretty successful career as a singer when she decided to give that up and instead marry Clarence and start a family. And that is something that, according to Lester, nagged at her for the rest of her life as she wondered what could have been.
1: According to Lester's biography of his brother, which we'll talk about later in the episode, Ernest was very much a father figure to his much younger sibling, Ernest did everything from changing Lester's diapers to teaching him how to shoot and fish and fight. He also gave his little brother one of a lot of nicknames that he would use throughout their relationship. That was the Baron. Grace was also assisted by a number of nurses and servants. She was not particularly interested in the more domestic aspects of family life. They were able to afford help, sometimes hiring students on summer breaks to assist them.
0: Yeah, Grace was not so interested in cooking and uh, housework. And, I mean, if you can afford help to do that and you don't like to do it, go you. Uh, In his very young years, Lester saw his older brother start his career as a writer, taking his first job as a police reporter at the Kansas City Star through a family connection. And then uh, Ernest moved quickly on to joining the American Red Cross Field Service to join the war effort during World War I. Ernest had actually wanted to go straight into the war from school, but their father forbade it. Uh, It is very clear through all of this and really the entire biography that he wrote that Lester idolized his big brother.
1: Ernest was injured by a mortar shell while distributing cigarettes and chocolate to the men on the front lines in Italy during the war. He managed to carry an injured soldier on his back to the aid station before he passed out, and that was a feat that was made even more impressive because he was hit by two bullets from a machine gun along the way. His legs had also taken most of the blast from the mortar.
0: For years, this incident grew in its telling in public circles, and it was something that Ernest seemed to even encourage in not correcting any of them. But Lester, in writing about it, set the record straight that his brother had not taken hundreds of bullets to the groin or had any kind of mental or emotional breakdown as a result of this incident. Ernest later referenced and kind of fueled this rumor that his genitalia had been irreversibly injured in the writing of his character Jake in his novel The Sun Also Rises. So he definitely kind of enjoyed the oversized versions of this story that went around. Ernest was seriously injured, and he required several months to recover, but he did return home. He was hailed as a war hero, and Lester would later write of it, quote, it was pretty glorious stuff being kid brother to the guy who had personally helped make the world safe for democracy.
1: When Ernest and his first wife, Hadley Richardson, traveled to Europe, Lester wrote him what he described as fan mail. That struck me as so
0: interesting uh, that he calls it that, but clearly very adoring of his brother. In the fall of 1926, Lester's grandfather on the Hemingway side passed away, and it was the first of many events that culminated in a depression for their father, Clarence. Soon after, Ernest wrote to tell the family that he and his wife were separated amicably and they were getting a divorce. This was something Clarence was very upset by. He told Lester, who was just a little over 11 years old at the time, quote, you know, of course, that your brother has brought great shame on the family by divorcing Hadley, don't you?
1: Ernest's rapid second marriage to Pauline Pfeiffer, who became pregnant soon after the wedding, was another blow. Even though the Hemingways loved Pauline and were happy to welcome a new grandchild, Ernest sort of insulted his father, who, as we said earlier, was an obstetrician, by asking kind of pointed questions about the quality of the hospital where he was working uh, as he and Pauline try to decide where they were going to have the baby.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There is a letter in this biography that Lester publishes. He doesn't publish any of his brother's letters, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the letter that Clarence wrote back to him is very polite And he kind of is like, oh, yeah, the hospital's here, might not do for you. Maybe you would be better off having the baby elsewhere. And it sounds very polite and not upset, but Lester is very clear that his father was really injured and heartbroken, that the quality of the care that he was part of was questioned in this way. Additionally, there was some ongoing strife between Ernest and Clarence. Even though his eldest son was making a name for himself as a writer and was lauded as one of the great literary voices of the time by this point, Clarence and Grace just didn't understand Ernest's work, and they often did not like it when they read it. That, coupled with their ongoing dismay about Ernest's life choices, had really put a strain on the father-son relationship.
1: Then as 1928 played out, Clarence had a run of bad luck, He had invested in property in Florida, planning it as a retirement destination, but then the bottom dropped out of the real estate market in Florida. The property was significantly devalued. The Hemingways owed a lot more on it than it was worth, and Clarence was not going to be able to set up a retirement practice there. Several months later, Clarence was diagnosed with diabetes. This was something he had suspected for a while, but he had put off getting tested. It's
0: one of those, uh, the cobbler's children have no shoes situation. He is one of those doctors that did not want to go to the doctor. Uh, These events all accumulated, and Lester described in his writing Clarence having a, quote, serious loss of morale, and it was something he also called an emotional illness. On the morning of December 6, 1928, Clarence burned a few of his personal items and papers, and then he retired to an upstairs bedroom, and he shot himself. In the midst of the household's grief and turmoil, Ernest had traveled in to manage the funeral arrangements and some other business. He told Lester, who at this point was 13, that A, he should not cry, that the Hemingways did not cry. It was just kind of a horrible emotional burden to give a kid. And B, that he wanted Lester to get the gun that their father had used to end his life from the police and have it shipped to him. Ernest Hemingway wanted that weapon.
1: So you might think that something like that would sour the younger brother's admiration for his older sibling, but this was not the case at all. A few years later, as the movie adaptation of The Sun Also Rises was coming out, Lester visited his big brother in Piggott, Arkansas, where Pauline's family lived— they went and saw the movie and reported back about it to Ernest and then went hunting with him. And this whole trip, in Lester's account, reads as though Ernest was keenly aware that his brother needed somebody to step into the shoes of their late father. And the two of them talked about their family. Ernest made sure that Lester had enough money.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Ernest did not want to go see the movie, but he did want to hear if it was okay, so that's why he sent his Uh, And this relationship, to be clear, was also something that benefited Ernest. He really liked having someone in his life that looked up to him. Lester later wrote, quote, "...Ernest was never very content with life unless he had a spiritual kid brother nearby. He needed someone he could show off to as well as teach. He needed uncritical admiration. If the kid brother could show a little worshipful awe, that was a distinct aid in the relationship." I made a good kid brother when I was around, but I couldn't be around regularly.
1: We'll talk more about the relationship between the Hemingway brothers as Lester grew into adulthood after we take a quick sponsor break.
0: As the years went on, Lester and Ernest remained close, although other friends filled that kid-brother role for the writer when Lester was busy with school. The younger brother joined his brother on the sea in Key West when the novelist took delivery of his famous fishing boat Pilar, in 1934. And during their trips out on the water, they continued their long talks. This was something that they would do for years and years. It was aboard Pilar that they discussed the fact that Lester also wanted to be a professional writer, just like his older brother, and the shared knowledge that anything the younger Hemingway wrote would be compared to Ernest's work. Everything you do, Ernest told his brother, they'll say you're writing on my reputation. You know that, don't you?
1: Ultimately, Ernest was supportive of Lester's desire to write, And told him he could give him some advice, but he did not want to help him in any way beyond that. Over the years, he offered up some tips, like, if you can't make up stories, you shouldn't try to write. A real one remembered is always sort of flat compared to a made-up one.
0: Yeah, perfectly happy to dole out advice, but he didn't want anybody to be able to say that Lester hadn't earned his place as a writer. He also advised that Lester should do what he had done, which was start out in newspapers. He felt like that was a really good way to develop your own voice and also to basically, like, get in the habit of having to write all the time, whether you felt like it or not. And that was precisely what the younger Hemingway brother did. In 1935, Lester started working for the Chicago Daily News, writing regional news and fielding questions from his co-workers about his famous brother.
1: In 1953, almost 20 years after the two brothers had started talking about Lester becoming a writer, he published his first novel, The Sound of the Trumpet, and that was based on his experiences in Europe during the Second World War. It was compared in the press to uh, to Ernest's work and often was deemed derivative and heavily influenced by Ernest Hemingway. Lester wrote several other books that also existed but went unpublished.
0: We didn't mention that he went to Europe during the Second World War. And there's a reason, which is that Lester's life is not documented in any way as well as his brother's. It kind of comes up in these, these. oh, yes, of course they went to Europe. It was in my book. But he's so busy always uh, capturing his brother's life that he never really seemed to record a lot about his own. Uh, Lester, for example, married twice I couldn't tell you the dates because I could not find them despite looking around uh, very energetically about it. His first wife was Patricia Shedd. The couple had two sons together, Peter and Jacob, who went by Jake, although that marriage did not last. He next married Doris Mae Dunning, a marriage which produced two daughters, Anne and Hillary, and he was married to Doris for the rest of his life.
1: So documenting Ernest Hemingway's life was something that Lester said was his brother's idea, Ernest wanted, quote, somebody who really knew me to write a book about me. And Lester took up that challenge, writing about his brother's, quote, absolute integrity, both emotional and aesthetic. But the famous Hemingway did not want a biography to be published about him while he was still alive. So Lester, who worked on the project for some time, just held on to that manuscript.
0: On July 2nd, 1961, Ernest Hemingway was found dead in the foyer of the home in Idaho that he shared with his fourth wife, Mary. The obituary, which ran in the New York Times, printed Mary's statement, quote, Mr. Hemingway accidentally killed himself while cleaning a gun this morning at 7.30 a.m. No time has been set for the funeral services, which will be private. But the obituary also noted that Ernest had been treated at the Mayo Clinic in recent months and quoted a friend of the author's from the police force as saying that friends had relayed that in the time leading up to his death, Hemingway, quote, looked thinner and acted depressed. The coroner also gave a quote in this obituary story that stated, I can only say at this stage that the wound was self-inflicted. The wound was in the head. I couldn't say it was accidental, and I couldn't say it was suicide. There wasn't anybody there.
1: Lester's book was published eight months after Ernest's death, titled simply My Brother, Ernest Hemingway, and it was dedicated to his wife, Doris. The opening of the
0: book offers so much insight into the reverence for Ernest that his brother had. It reads, quote, The conversations recorded in this biography are as accurate as I could make them. I did not have a tape recorder, and I do not possess total recall. But my own notes, ship's log, and memory enabled me to reproduce many conversations. In writing dialogue, Ernest polished, edited, and was the supreme master of this art. In presenting Ernest's conversations, I have been mindful of the obligations of a brother, a friend, and a biographer. Ernest did not favor the publication of his letters, so they have not been reproduced here. He regarded all biographies as unlucky during the subject's lifetime. Yet at the end of the last letter I had from him, he wished me luck with this book.
1: Lester acknowledged the version of his brother's death that Ernest's wife Mary had shared with the press, that it may have been an accident rather than an intentional effort to end his own life. But Lester also attributes full intention to his brother's actions. He wrote really candidly about his brother's depression, his sadness at having lost several friends, and during that time at the Mayo Clinic, he was undergoing electroshock treatments.
0: He also notes in the text that Ernest was, unlike any author before him, mourned globally as though he had been a statesman rather than a writer. Lester's biography of his brother was well-received, and it is still read today by Hemingway enthusiasts. And it is definitely an adoring picture of the man, and it is filled with a lot of stories about them hunting and fishing together, uh, a lot of details regarding all of that, not the best read for people who might be squeamish about the details of such activities.
1: Okay, so we're going to go ahead and stop for a sponsor break because after his brother's iconic life had ended, Lester made some really bold decisions of his own. We will get to that right after a sponsor break.
0: Okay, this is going to sound like we edited two different episodes together because it's a little bit of a track jump, but we have to pause for a moment here In the story of Lester Hemingway's life, we did not edit two episodes together accidentally to discuss bird poop. Uh, Before synthetic fertilizers were commercially produced in any kind of cost-effective way, the name of the game in soil fertilization was guano. Guano. All kinds of natural fertilizers had been used since the beginning of time. Manure, compost, and river silt have all been used to enrich soil to produce crops for centuries.
1: Yeah, we we talked about some of this in our episode on uh, the discovery of phosphorus. Yeah. And uh, guano, in this case, seabird excrement rather than bats, was used in the Andes and the Peruvian coast as well as other areas to enrich the soil They became really coveted by a lot of countries in the 19th century, and this was a significant part of several conflicts. The First and Second Wars of the Pacific, which started in 1864 and 1879, respectively, were fought over occupation and exploitation of South American territories that were rich in a lot of resources, one of them being guano. But before
0: either of those conflicts, in 1856, the U.S. Congress passed the Guano Islands Act. Seabirds, particularly in places where their colonies have been allowed to flourish without humans getting in the way, produce a lot of very rich fertilizer. The U.S. in the 1850s did not have a whole lot of islands with productive seabird populations to fill this need. So this federal law was intended to generate territory that would give them access to this natural resource.
1: The act's opening... Reads as follows, whenever any citizen of the United States discovers a deposit of guano on any island, rock, or key, not within the lawful jurisdiction of any other government, and not occupied by the citizens of any other government, and takes peaceable possession thereof and occupies the same, such island, rock, or key may, at the discretion of the president, be considered as appertaining to the United States. According to this
0: act, the discoverer of such a spot is required to notify the Department of State of the possession and provide proof that all of the conditions of the law are met. If the person who discovers the guano resource were to die before all this paperwork and proof is taken care of, his widow or heirs can follow through and they will get credit for the discovery as well as rights to live there on this this declared land and to harvest and sell the guano there. The claimed land and guano shipment is also to be protected by the U.S. And I am using present tense language here because this federal law still
1: stands. We're going to get back to this bird poop. But for a moment, we're going to go back to Lester Hemingway. The publication of My Brother Ernest Hemingway made a bit of money for Lester, and he had some plans for how to use it. He had gotten $25,000 from Playboy magazine to publish the story as a serial, and the biography was really successful, eventually being translated into 11 languages. Everyone, it seemed, wanted the inside story of the Hemingway family and its most famous member. On July 4th,
0: 1964, Lester Hemingway took all of the proceeds from the book and made his own history by creating his own country. He floated a raft made of bamboo, it was also fortified, we'll talk about that in a minute, to a spot 8 miles, that's 12.8 kilometers, to the southwest of Jamaica, making that international waters.
1: The raft, which was 8 by 30 feet, or 2.4 by 9.1 meters, was then anchored with a Ford engine block, It was fortified with pipes and steel, and Lester Hemingway declared that this raft was an island. He further claimed that half of this island was the brand new country of New Atlantis, but the other half, he said, was claimed for the United States under the Guano Islands Act, which at that point was more than 100 years old.
0: The Guano Islands Act made it possible for Lester to gain the protection of the U.S. government over his new country, simply because his man-made island was so small that there would be no way to really coordinate off as two separate entities in any sort of practical sense. So uh, he wrote a constitution for New Atlantis, sort of. He actually just used the exact wording of the U.S. Constitution, but he subbed in the name New Atlantis everywhere the original document had said United States.
1: Seven months after claiming this new territory, which was a republic, Lester held elections. The resident voters of New Atlantis were Lester, his wife Doris, their two daughters, PR specialist Edward K. Moss, and Julia Cellini, who was Moss's assistant. Lester was elected president in a unanimous vote, and then all of this, the declaration of New Atlantis, the elections, Lester's constitution, all of that was covered in the press Lester gave quotes to reporters that his new country was peaceful and had no intention of threatening its neighbors and that he did not know of any laws forbidding starting your own country.
0: Yeah, I feel like we should also note that two of the constituents who voted in that presidential election, his daughters, were little kids at the time. (laughs) So voting rights were uh, conferred at a very young age. There was also currency for New Atlantis which was in case you're wondering named after the uh Francis Bacon idea. New Atlantis commerce was done in scruples which appeared to be just items scavenged from the sea such as fish hooks and shark teeth etc. Uh the joke there is that Lester Hemingway thought that if you were rich you should have a lot of scruples. Uh you could not gamble though on New Atlantis that was verboten against the law. Lester's wife, Doris, stitched the country's flag, which featured a gold equilateral triangle pointing down on a royal blue background. It also had a circle of royal blue in the center of the triangle. There were actually several of these flags because uh, some had blown away in the wind and whatnot. There is one remaining to this day.
1: And then there were the stamps. New Atlantis designed print and sold stamps at five different values— President Lyndon B. Johnson was featured on the 100-cent stamp, which resulted in a thank-you note from the White House.
0: And all of this sounds a little bit silly. It is easy to imagine that an eccentric with a bit of privilege and some money was just mucking around with this idea of starting a country or that it was some sort of publicity stunt for his writing. And he did admit that he was motivated by fun and the desire to see if he could make money off of starting a new government. But there was also a scientific goal for the fledgling Republic of New Atlantis. Lester Hemingway wanted the island to become home to the International Marine Research Society. They could do science work there and for sales of stamps to finance that endeavor. And he also wanted his country and any money that they made out of stamp sales to be used to protect nearby fishing resources.
1: In the autumn of 1965, Lester worked with a librarian at the University of Texas Humanities Research Center in Austin to create an exhibit about his new country, including what may be the only copy of the Constitution, as well as a number of other artifacts. This collection remains at the University of Texas at Austin, Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center.
0: Yeah, some of those pieces they have uh, photographs of online. But New Atlantis, you may have noticed, you don't have to memorize it in a list of countries, and that is because it was a short-lived project. Its demise was not that the Universal Postal Union refused to acknowledge its stamps, although that was a very real problem. Uh, But the culprit here was nature itself. New Atlantis, which Lester had been hoping to expand and further fortify, was destroyed in a storm in 1966 before he could make improvements on it.
1: After the demise of his little country, Lester continued to write. He started working as a freelance journalist, writing about fishing and the outdoors, activities he had learned about from his brother. He wrote for various periodicals and also started his own newsletter, the Bimini Out Island News, which he described as the smallest newspaper in the world.
0: Yeah, in one quote, he said something like, you would need two copies to wrap a piece of fish. So... (laughs) Very little. Uh, As he aged, Lester also let his beard grow out. And to a lot of people, he started to look like the spitting image of his deceased brother during this time.
1: In his mid-60s, Lester had a heart attack and then was diagnosed with diabetes, which led to a number of surgeries, including having artificial arteries put into his legs. His health continued to decline, and his doctors, noting his poor circulation, suggested that he have both of his legs amputated. This was more than he was willing to consider. And like his father and his brother before him, Lester Hemingway's medical issues brought on depression. And at the age of 67, in September of 1982, Lester Hemingway ended his life via a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head.
0: I had not heard about Lester until fairly recently, and I was immediately fascinated. Yeah. Because it is a story of someone who seems very, um, I don't know if contented is the right word, but comfortable living in the shadow of a much more famous sibling. And even to the point that they're willing to pursue the same career, knowing it will count against them in some ways. But then once Ernest is gone, Lester does some really fascinating things of his own. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an interesting dude. And I think uh, a lot of people don't know about him. I think people that are really into the Hemingways and their family history and, and Ernest probably have an inkling of him. But, uh, Lester gets a little bit lost in the historical record. So that's why I wanted to talk about him because I I love the story of a an eccentric and I love the idea of starting one's own country <laughs> 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 even if it does not go tremendously well. Uh it is such a fun idea though.
1: Yeah. Do you have listener mail for us? I do. It's
0: much more upbeat, although it does start out with the um, subject line, heartbroken.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw that subject <laughs> line and like I, I, I braced for impact. Yeah,
0: it's and it turns out to be lovely. It is from our listener, Paige, who writes, Hello, Tracy and Holly. I've been listening to Mist in History for years now, but I've fallen behind after returning to school and reallocating a lot of my time from podcasts. As my aside, congratulations on going back to school. I hope it is fulfilling and that you're doing great. Uh, she continues, I just listened to your podcasts on thalidomide, fascinating as always, and heard that you were coming to Denver. I held my breath as I waited for you to say the date, and it was, of course, already passed. I am so sorry to have missed you. I hope you had a wonderful time in Denver and look forward to hearing about that live show. I'll start checking the website for appearance dates so I won't miss another chance. Thank you both so much for keeping me company during so many tedious tasks, Long drives in the occasional relaxing bath over the years. I'm sure you hear it from others, but listening to you guys for so long has really made me feel like we have a strange sort of friendship. And I love learning from you and hearing about all the little connections your other listener friends find out in the world. Uh, love, Paige. P.S. I think Holly called someone a grouchal in the William McClure episode. Did I hear that right? If that was a thing, I want on a t-shirt so badly. Um, yes, I did. That's a word I use to describe myself when I'm grumpy. And I think it's funny.
1: It is a funny word.
0: <laughs> I don't know when I started using it. Sometime in my 20s or something. Um, sure, we'll see if they want to put that on a shirt. We'll talk to our two public people. Um, I wanted to mention this because it brings up something that uh, we've been discussing. Uh, you have probably noticed if you go to our website, it is not as robust in terms of offering up all of the the stuff you may be used to seeing. It is not. So um, – I, I mostly just wanted to say we know that is, uh, in some ways, could be a little bit frustrating. We are working on figuring out a workaround for it I cannot make any promises. We don't know what form that will take if we get to a solution that the company agrees upon. But just know that we hear you uh, and we understand. We will, I think, probably as a matter of course, we might start when we have appearances or trips coming up. We might start just uh, doing a quick little announcement of them, maybe at the end of listener mail or something along those lines, just to keep everybody posted.
1: We do have one appearance coming up that I can talk about right now.
0: I think you should.
1: I will talk, and then I will get back to the website thing. Because I, <laughs> So, Sunday, July 5th, we are coming back to Quincy, Massachusetts to Adams National Historical Park for a live show, 2 p.m. I am not 100% sure yet whether it is up on the Adams National Historical Park website, but that's still quite a ways away in terms of time. People have plenty of time to work on it. I'm sure we will mention it again. So, again... Back in Quincy, Massachusetts again, Sunday, July 5th at 2 p.m. that day for afternoon show.
0: We had such a great time last time around that I can't wait.
1: Hopefully our live show will not fall into the Adams triangle in terms of recording it like last time. (laughs) Uh, But even even if something goes wrong with the recording, again, we'll do a studio version of that episode. Uh, Back to the website... I totally understand how frustrating uh, it has been for folks who were using that to get to our show notes or to have a searchable archive of every episode ever, which is like a thing that I said in every episode of the show for years. Um, So, yeah, we totally understand that the website change has been frustrating. Um, It was something that was outside of our control. And I think it's also something that some people have interpreted as kind of nefarious, but really it was just a product of uh, our podcast. It was initially part of a company called How Stuff Works. Over the years, How Stuff Works, uh, before we started doing podcasts, was sold to Discovery Channel. After Discovery Channel, after we were part of Discovery Channel, that's when we started doing podcasts. And then in this time span after that, we were sold two more times, spun off into our own business, and then sold again. And our website was, like, on architecture from another company that, like, doesn't own us and isn't part of the show anymore. Yeah. So, like, it had to move to iHeartRadio, which we have been part of for now more than a year. Like, (laughs) Like a a year and a half. (laughs) A totally different company had been supporting our website all that time. So... Uh, I think folks have just, some folks have been like, ah, I can't believe they did this to you. And really, like, it was just a business thing that had to happen. You, you cannot, if you're a business, just continue indefinitely to support a totally different business's website.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I always tell people, because this comes up, I think, in, in fandoms for many things. I'm very active in Star Wars fandom, it comes up there. When something happens, people want to attach meaning or intent to it that makes it a little more exciting or dramatic. But really, often, if it's an Occam's razor, the most boring, mundane explanation is probably the realist one. Because uh, in business in particular, there are a lot of boring, mundane logistics that just have to be handled, and those often lead to
1: situations like the
0: one we find ourselves in yeah. at the moment. So, so again, as
1: as Holly said, we are actively working on getting a solution that will, like, at least have our show notes and things available for folks. And in the meantime, if you need some show notes, send us an email, and we will see if we can help you out, like, within reason. <laughs> right. Uh, we um, cannot email you the show notes for every episode ever, but if there is a particular episode that you need the show notes for because you're working on a project for school or something, send us a note. We'll try to help you out.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you for all of your patience in in dealing with that. If you're, I know, particularly for educators that often use the site in their classroom, it's been a little bit frustrating. So we continue to work on it. Again, it's it's a mundane, boring logistics thing, but then creates some difficulties figuring out a solution. So bear with us and, and thank you for your patience up to this point. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. If you would like to subscribe to the show, that Sounds just delightful to us. Do it at the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen.
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.